a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Today's guest, Andrea Clark, is an expert communicator. As a former Washington journalist and humanitarian aid worker on the front line in Afghanistan, Andrea knows how to command the respect of a room and clearly communicate her message. Andrea is now the founder of Future Fit and a best-selling author. Graduates of her workshops all say she changes lives, and you're about to find out why. Andrea, there are many ways to approach leadership, and your expertise is in about building soft skills. But what does that actually mean? Hard skills are what's on paper. So, for example, I studied artificial intelligence at MIT. Now, that's really nice, whatever. But as soon as I walk into a workplace, no one is going to ask me for that piece of paper or for that degree. So what really matters to my colleagues and to leadership is my ability to adapt, to negotiate, to be creative, to influence, to network, to manage my time and be motivated and solve problems. So these are all of the skills that will absolutely accelerate our career, but not just our own careers and and the purpose of our career, but the purpose and the mission of our teams and our business across the entire industry. So that's why soft skills are so important. Um, They are very hard to measure, but I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, the increasing importance of them across the workplace. So if I'm sitting out there today thinking, all right, perhaps I need to get another degree, I need another certificate, what would you say to me? I absolutely think there is a place for building technical skills and increasing our learning in whatever way is relevant to you and the business. But I think balanced with that, we also need to invest time, real time, in building things like negotiating skills, like communication, like understanding our ability to adapt, because it's all of those real skills, the personal skills, those are the things that really matter when it comes to getting it done on the ground. And they're highly transferable. This is the, this is the most wonderful thing about soft skills. Women come out of high school with the best marks, they get into the best degrees, uh, they get the best results, and they are most likely to go on and do a second degree. So what you're identifying is that we have a cohort of incredibly qualified women who, I think what you're going to say, is struggle at some of these other skill sets, even though perhaps traditionally we would think they'd be better at it. Communication is a core leadership competency and I think is often and routinely overlooked in leadership development. And what we're seeing now are really interesting stats and data coming out of huge firms like PwC, Deloitte, Mercer, running large-scale surveys. And what they're all finding is the same conclusion, and that is that increasingly the skills gap lies in the soft skills. So McKinsey very recently released a report stating that the top three missing skills in the workplace are number one, problem-solving, 
Number two, an ability to deal with complexity. And number three, communication. So HR departments are, are very alive to the fact that they're not finding enough people with these skills. And I think what we're seeing, especially through COVID, is this being revealed very quickly in our leaders. I've had a number of people say to me, look, I'm not even going to turn on my camera when I'm on the Zoom call because I'm not a confident communicator. So I think what we're going to see is communication really shoot up that list of the missing soft skill in the workplace. So this is how we lead. It's not a response. This is how we lead. And if you don't have your camera on, how can you expect to really connect with your team? How you present physically remains a challenge. And I'm interested to know from you how important you think today it is to be really polished and well presented. Or is there value now in the more low-key, more authentic, more behind-the-scenes Zoom style in my <laughs> lounge room approach to your public profile? I do think it's important to to be yourself however that looks and however it feels. What I think is important is that we respect our audience and we respect the tone of the office that we're walking into. I like to say to people that it's important to meet the office halfway. So bring half of your own style to work, but 50% of that style dial has to reflect the tone and the environment that you're in out of respect. I do think it's important though, you know, and we all love to go for a few days with unwashed hair. It's a, you know, it's a great thing, but I think you should do whatever you want to do as long as that's not undermining your performance and undermining your confidence. Because I know, especially from TV reporting, all of those mornings when I woke up and thought, oh, I can get away with one more day and <laughs> not washing yes. my hair, you knew that was the day that there was a national live cross with the Prime Minister or something fairly intense. And and so for me, it's about be whoever you want to be because it's exhausting trying to be someone else or another version of yourself. But be certain not to undermine your own confidence with the way you're presenting yourself. So if you feel better in three-inch heels in the boardroom, put the heels on. Or if you feel more comfortable in runners, do that. As long as it does not undermine your ability to be a high performer when you need to be, that's that's all that concerns me. And I think you're right. That, that comes down to confidence. Mm. So if you feel confident in the way you dress and present, then you will perform well and then the rest sort of fades into the background. Mm. I do think being comfortable is important. Oh, it's well. very important. <laughs> <laughs> you are uh, an expert in how to deliver a report or speak in a meeting so that you command respect. What advice do you have for our audience today? My advice is to know that communication is about impact. It's not about output. It's about natural authority and it's about recognising that every single person in the room has something to contribute, including you. My three shortcuts would be organising your content. Organising your content in a way that is measured and compelling. Secondly, eye contact. Make sure that you are really connecting with everyone around the table. And thirdly, recognise the power in pause. Recognise the natural command that comes with delivering on your own terms. And women often feel a desire to fill the gaps when they're silence. My suggestion is to only speak up when you have something to say and be comfortable with silence because that can be a very powerful signal that you're quite comfortable with what you're delivering. Do men and women make the same mistakes? 
They do. I think that men have different habits when it comes to fidgeting when they're presenting. So they, they'll always put their hands in their pockets, that kind of thing. But th- I think that's the only nuance. When I'm looking at a communication style and impact, what I'm looking for is use of language, our body language, um, our vocal patterns, and then how we organise our content. And usually men and women have unconsciously undermined themselves in very, very nuanced ways. Women will tend to naturally tilt their head to the side more often than men because, candidly, men have had way more practice and exposure to presenting, delivering, and they've had more exposure to those moments where we feel, you know, a great degree of self-doubt and vulnerability. And I think we feel like we're scrutinised on a whole range of other levels, you Mm. know, about our appearance Mm -hmm. and... And that can be broken down into hair colour and length and, you know, the length of your legs. And you you stand there feeling very vulnerable if you're presenting quite often in front of large crowds. And women are as critical of of women as we know um, Mm. from time to time, at least, although we're getting better at that. I do think that we need to have a basic awareness of if we're in front of an audience, it's important to us. The most important thing to remember is don't wear anything that's distracting because if you've got a giant necklace on and you're making a, you know, a brilliant and profound point about something, you don't want people distracted from the message because they're looking at your necklace thinking, I wonder where she got that from. So you're actually taking away the attention from this very important message that you have. And when you look at role models like Julie Bishop, for example, um, immaculately presented on every occasion, block colours, you know, nothing dramatic about the way she dresses. I, I noticed yesterday I was watching Jacinda Ardern and I noticed that she had quite a large gold necklace on and I was distracted from what she was saying. I had to go back and play it again. But that's an example of unconsciously undermining your authority by having something that's that's a bit of a distraction. And sure, I mean, wear it anywhere you want, but just be aware that what you're doing is pulling away from a really important message. We could talk about female mm. leaders on the world stage a lot, and we have done because I do think there are lots of learnings. And one of the key ones I would make is that volume of women uh, on in front of cameras or on stage or uh, leading means that all of those issues, necklaces and heels mm. and colours, become less of an issue. Mm-hmm. Partly it's a still, um, sadly, it's about the number of women in leadership positions and they still are slightly more, more interesting. Mm. If you could summarise for us... What do you think are the most common mistakes that women make when presenting? I think there are three common themes that I see in in my practice. Uh, Number one is um, having hair across your face. I mean, it's awesome that you've got a great blow dry, but I want to see your face. I don't want you to hide. How many times have you told me that? (laughs) (laughs) Only once and you you heard me loud and clear. But we can't hide from people and you know, when you've got your hair across your face, what you're saying is I'm hiding from you and we don't want you to hide. We want you to connect with us. So hair across face, um, the tilting of the head. Now that's a sign of active listening, but when you are establishing credibility with an audience, it's head straight on shoulders. Um, And thirdly is twining of the legs. So if you're on a stage or in a position where you've got an audience in front of you, be mindful of how you are shifting your weight and twining one leg around the other. So I always like to think feet directly under hips and be grounded, feel grounded, you know, in your space and in that, in your own presence. So small things, but they send big signals to the audience. And the signals are, I'm nervous, I'm in doubt about what I'm saying. Um, When you are not, when you're the expert in your field, in every case. 
I've seen this with my own eyes uh, and, and heard the feedback. Your training and your expertise is life-changing for so many people uh, and you have a cult following amongst people that have been trained by you. How have you developed this understanding and what background did you have to come uh, come to the table with such expertise? First of all, I think that that confidence is highly contextual and I want women in particular to recognise that they need confidence that's consistent in every room. I want them to be as confident in the kitchen as they are in the boardroom. So I want them to be, I want them to have confidence. It's non-contextual. I think being a reporter and, you know, our job every day is to turn up to a different situation and make it work. And so to do that, you have to read a room. You have years and years of practice reading rooms and reading social cues and reading the situation and making it work for you in whatever way you need that to work. And so you know, I've, I feel like I bring every day of my reporting career into the training room. And the whole point of creating Career CEO was to bring broadcast principles into the boardroom for women and men who don't necessarily understand how much they can get done if they work on their comm skills and if they work on their, their ability to influence. One of the things I think you do really well and understand innately about women is that there are extroverts and introverts. When you are training those two sets of people, and I'm generalising, there are are those of us that kind of cross over. Uh, I would regard myself as an introvert. You would probably regard me as someone who crosses a bit um, over onto the extrovert side because of the things that I've done in my career. How do you train those two different groups of people? It's really interesting. Um, and first of all, I my interpretation of introvert is, and I consider myself an introvert, you know, we don't get our energy from being out and about all the time around people. I've never been that person. So I, you know, that resonates strongly with me. So I understand introverts. When I'm in a training room, I understand that they're the ones not racing to put their hand up to ask questions. They're not highly responsive, but that does not mean that they're not taking in every single lesson and tool and technique and tactic that you are throwing at them. So, you know, in terms of training both of those groups of people, I don't think that there's a difference because I feel like we all suffer from the same degree of self-doubt and we all have precisely the same issues. You know, in the hundreds of workshops that I've run, you know, every single group of women you know, 10 out of 10 will put their hand up when I ask who is nervous about presenting to the board. Every single person's nervous, regardless of whether they get their energy from people or from, you know, being at home by themselves. So in that respect, I don't distinguish my training style, but what I'm seeing with digital is what a great leveler it is and what a great equaliser it is when everyone's at home learning in their own time. And everyone has the same opportunity to to post questions and interact and and generate discussion. So I think digital is a whole new um, it's a whole new ball game, and it is a gift for introverts who now ask questions and interact with far more frequency than what I've ever seen in a face to face workshop. I have to agree. Having just worked with you on a on a recent um, Future Women Career CEO workshop, it was mind-blowing to see a group of women who were quite shy, many of them working 
uh, in very high-powered but difficult roles in government service agencies and departments, all within the safety of their own lounge room, bedroom, kitchen, start to come out of their shells and deliver reports and video with 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 impact, as you would say. And it really proved to me that introverts do struggle in live workshops, whereas in the online learning space have an enormous capacity to grow quite quickly. Were you surprised by the level of interaction that you got versus the interaction you might get if you're doing a live workshop? And then I'm going to ask you a two-part mm. question. Um, how does that inform your training and understanding mm. of this space going forward? I think this particular digital platform proves that how important psychological safety is in new ways of working and new ways of learning. And I think what we're proving and what we saw last week was when you create a safe space for 110 women at a time, none of who have met one another, when you create a safe space, a safe enough space, you let the cohort kind of take over the conversation. And I am astounded (laughs) as someone who's run face-to-face workshops for almost 10 years around the country and around the world, um, I'm I'm astounded. I've never seen interaction like it. I've never seen the you know the level of activity that I've seen in this. And I'm I'm thrilled because as as a facilitator, my main concern is around skills retention and learning outcomes. So all I care about is are people really learning, and then are they going to apply these skills, and are those skills going to be something that have longevity in their career? And I'm confident this was the right move. I mean, it's now it's now given me so much more confidence to kind of rearrange my whole business model around it because I feel like this is by far the most effective type of learning that you know that I've ever delivered. It's it's incredible to see. I think it'll be interesting to see um, how other uh, businesses, organisations, companies respond mm. and in every aspect of their workplaces because it does show that uh, you can get a lot more out of people and they do learn faster mm. if they're in a safe space. What happens when uh, they have to go back to work? What do you recommend to organisations? What do you recommend to the introverts? And do you think they can develop a safe space in order to, to grow and lead? I'm not sure we're going back to a normal anytime soon. I think that there's going to be a permanent place for rem- for remote working and a mix of office and, and remote. And I think that's I think that's great news for introverts because they can continue contributing on their own sort of safe terms, feeling psychologically safe. My advice for introverts is to keep doing what you're doing and make sure that you're always contributing. My advice for everyone else in a meeting is to keep making room for the quiet achievers, just as you have been doing through the last couple of months. Keep making room for them because you can only take your initiative forward, your product forward, your movement forward, if you allow everyone to have a voice around the table, regardless of how soft that voice might be. So you talk a lot about reputation capital. What does that mean? Reputation capital is a new measure of trust. And so your reputation capital is the degree to which you are trusted across your own community and marketplace. It's essentially the sum total of both our online and offline behaviour. And my concern for leaders is about having those two aligned and having those two match up. Um, Because 
you know, people say to me, I don't care about my brand. I don't want to curate my brand. It's not about brand. Reputation capital is a whole different thing because our reputations are already leaving a trail. And as leaders, we need to be conscious of that. And we need to be considered about the fact that, yes, it's about reputation, but it's more about trust. It's about what what are you what are you doing and not doing that's establishing and accelerating or decelerating trust with people around you? I think you make an important distinction there between brand and reputation because many women say, I don't want to be a brand. Mm. But the point you're making is it's not about brand. It's about your reputation. Yeah. And we do take our reputation very seriously. So what advice do you have just broadly around uh, building your reputation? Mm. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the word when people say personal brand, I personally think, oh, it's so 80s, isn't it? Like it's so <laughs> it's so old school. And, and I understand when people cringe around that term. And that's why I love the term reputation capital, because it is so much more than your brand. It's what's been said about you when you're not in the room. And I think it's going to be more important because as we move into a looser and less structured workplace that's moving very fast, like the one we're currently in, we can expect lots more jobs to be filled on referral and lots more jobs to be filled on personal, you know, personal references. So we'll be all tapping our network for uh, talent advice and, and direction. And I think that's why we need to be a lot more concerned about what we're putting out there. So for me, it's about reputation capital for me. It's about, it's about having more intention. It's about putting more intention around your purpose and around your mission, whatever that might be. And what I ask people to think about is really what is the conversation that you want to start in your career? Do you want reform in a certain, you know, in a certain policy? Do you want equal pay? What kind of change do you want to lead? So if you think about your career just through the 2020s, what is one conversation that you want to start? And a lot of women are very hesitant about speaking up and being visible. And I want to say to you that leadership does not have to be loud. It's about intention and it's about impact. And so when it comes to your reputation capital, I want you to think about one conversation that you want to start in the next 10 years, whatever that might be. And you don't have to write a book about it. You might only want to do some LinkedIn posts about it, but let's be more intentional and put some order around what we do. So that translates to audiences in a way that establishes trust and accelerates trust so we can get more done in a shorter amount of time. Because many women would say, look, I'm really hardworking, mm. uh, I'm pretty popular at work, I've, I'm smarter than most of my colleagues. Why isn't that enough? And can't people see my value to uh, the organisation? But what you're saying is, yes, a lot of people are good at those things and a lot of women do that. If you want to stand out, you need to stand for something more than that. Absolutely. And not everyone knows what you stand for when they meet you. You know, our clothes don't give away our work ethic. They don't give away our purpose or in our intention. So we have to have, for example, a very small example, a very clear summary on LinkedIn. This is what, this is what I do. I work with large scale businesses seeking transformation, you know, for culture and growth and innovation. And I value diversity of ideas and I value being inspired by everyone around me. Like, what is it about you that you can be clearer about even on your LinkedIn profile summary? Because people do 
look at you. And we have thousands of people look at us online, thousands more than who we meet, you know, in the course of our day to day. So I think it's important for for your online um, intention to match that offline experience and people have of you. So then how difficult is it to overcome a negative reputation? I don't think it's difficult if you are considered about it. I think what you need to think about is your, first of all, your purpose. If you know that you have to tidy up your reputation capital in some form, even if it's on a small scale, I think there are a couple of considerations there. Number one, make sure your LinkedIn profile is completely up to date, tidy, sophisticated summary that demonstrates that you're closely connected to the value that you bring to a business. Secondly, headshot, or they're mostly out of date. So you'd never want anyone looking at your LinkedIn profile thinking, well, if their headshot is 10 years out of date, does that mean that their skill set is also 10 years out of date? There's a currency that we don't consider enough or as frequently as what we should. When we talk about professional headshots, you know, there's one end of the spectrum and then there's the other. I think you've got to find a balance that's candid, that is clean and sophisticated. Always run those past, you know, your your five favourite people who always give you unfiltered objective opinion. So I think that's the go on headshots. I do think they're important though, because if your headshot's missing, then there's a there's a question mark. If you don't have a photo, what are you hiding? What else might you be hiding? That's the subconscious thought process that goes through an HR. Rightly or wrongly. Exactly. Yeah. I would also ask for recommendations from people who you really respect, who you know you have delivered great work to. If you're going into a leadership position and you have advanced notice of that, that is an opportunity for you to take your digital footprint very seriously. Now, Megan Markle, for example, knew that she was getting engaged and going down that path. I am confident that there was a team tidying up her online footprint and the visibility and presence that she had online many, many, many months before she went public with her engagement. And I would have too if I was her. I mean, if you have an opportunity, if you've got time on your side to curate a digital footprint that's still very true to you, but is just a tidier version of yourself, then why wouldn't you do it? I think it's something that we all should do once a year. I, a couple of months ago before my book came out, did an online audit of myself, which I really hated doing, but it was an opportunity for me to, you know, um, scrap all of the, the the accounts that I had that I wasn't using. It was an opportunity for me to tidy up my LinkedIn profile, to really think about what I wanted to share on Instagram as well, and to go through an archive and delete tons of posts that were from five years ago. I'm a very different person. I, I'd like to think, I hope to think, than I was five years ago in terms of maturity. And so I think where you have an opportunity to to do an audit, to make sure that you're 100% comfortable with what's online, you should absolutely do that. And you should revisit that every 12 months. So let's talk about social media. Mm. You're obviously a fan of LinkedIn. Are there any traps in LinkedIn? Mm. And what about the rest? Twitter, Facebook, uh, I'm sure there are a bunch of others that <laughs> TikTok, I wouldn't really know about. Is. Snapchat. <laughs> um, tell us what you think. Well, I think that social media is about connecting with people. So if you're on social media and you're not connecting, that is really the point of being there. I think that you have to feel psychologically safe. And so for me, it's, you know, personally, I I feel very safe on Instagram. Um, I do not want anything to do with Twitter. I locked my Twitter accounts after being trolled a couple of years ago. 
And LinkedIn is a professional platform that that everyone has a presence on to some degree. So I think LinkedIn is a it's an excellent place to connect and to build a network, but with meaning. And when you interact, I think it's important to have purpose to the interaction. And I try to remind myself that when I'm commenting on something, have something to say, not just great post, you know, have, have a purpose to the interaction. So you can, you know, you can sort of further an association with someone who's a thought leader across your field. So one of the things that I always think about stroke judge people on mm-hmm. is how many images of themselves mm-hmm. they put up. Yeah. Uh, and also I understand the the temptation to do that because you get mm-hmm. so many more likes when you put your yourself into the image <laughs> rather than your sunsets. If you're talking about my Instagram account. Yes. But I I, I really don't love mm-hmm. to see someone just take photos of themselves mm-hmm. and post every day. Do you have any advice? So I've certainly put my own fair share of selfies slash professional shots up because I am obviously promoting a book, but also because I want to connect with people. And I try to have a real message that goes along with that. So, um, you know, my favourite my favorite quote from a former New York Times journalist and author, Anna Quinlan, she says, the thing that's really hard and really amazing is giving up on being perfect and beginning the work of becoming yourself. And that to me is the kind of meaning that I like to put behind photos of myself if and when I choose to put them up. And by the way, they are becoming far less frequent <laughs> uh, and I've deleted my fair share of them. But I think there has to be meaning. There has to be a real message um, when you are posting selfies. And I know in my own experience, it, it, there has to be something there. It's about, God, today was a total disaster and, you know, and here I am in an elevator about to just trying to salvage my day kind of thing, like something something that everyone can relate to. Can I ask you, what was the skill, the one skill that you felt you needed to or did work on to get to where you've got to today? That's such a great question. This is going to come a bit out of left field, but I've had to work really hard on my risk profile. I'm, I don't feel like I'm like very many people. I feel like I've got a very high tolerance for taking risks. Um, you know, I did not think it was a risk moving my life to Washington. I did not think it was a risk going to Iraq. I did not think it was a risk um, getting a visa to go to Afghanistan, which was a trip that was cancelled because we had locally engaged staff that were being taken hostage. So I have a very easy relationship with risk. And if it's one challenge that I've had, it is figuring out how do I slow myself down and focus on one objective, one objective for longer than a year. And so for me to work in my own business for almost 10 years has been a real challenge. I've had to dig really deep to stay in one spot and to focus on one thing because I am constantly wanting to take bigger and bolder risks in my life. And I think for me, growing up has meant really slowing down. And I feel like a very different person now than I felt even 12 months ago with my, you know, my own relationship to risk and, um, and change. I should ask you, therefore, uh, given your career as a as a television journalist um, and then an, an, a, working in aid agencies uh, in very dangerous circumstances, what motivated you to start a business where you help mm. men and women, this is not, not something that's gender specific for you, mm. um, develop their soft skills uh, in the hope that they will get substantial career um, advantages out of it? Well, I had a couple of experiences in Washington that really drove me 
towards starting a business around this and that were a real catalyst to me kind of dedicating my life to it. So the, the first experience was losing my job. I got sacked, suddenly sacked, um, just after I came back from Iraq with, from the International Aid Organisation. And that's a, you know, it was a, um, it was harsh. And if anyone who's been made redundant or sacked with no notice, you know what I'm saying. It is, it rocks your world the first time it happens. I feel like if it happens again, you're really prepared for it and you know it's a blessing and everything's going to be fine. But when you don't know everything's going to be fine, it, 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 you know, it leaves you feeling the most vulnerable that, that you've ever felt. And that's how I felt. So what came out of that was the question I had for myself through that was, how can I be future fit? What other future skills that I need to never be in this situation again? And how can I then help other people to protect themselves through their career and be highly, highly super agile in their transferable skills and all of these soft skills? Um, so how can I do that? And so that was one factor. The other factor was constantly being around really intelligent women and being inspired by women like Samantha Power, who at the time was a US special envoy to, um, sorry, US uh, representative to the United Nations. Being around and hearing and being in close proximity to incredible women. But then there was this, there was a group of women always, or there was a feeling that we're all talking about leaning in, but no one really understood how to do that. How do we, because you can't just say you've got to lean in in that boardroom. How do I do that? I've got to understand what are the signals I'm already sending? How am I already unconsciously undermining myself through my use of language, my body language, the way I structure my content? So it was those nuances of communication that I wanted to really, really you know, examine and I really wanted to help people with. So those two sort of observations and experiences really were the catalyst to me trying to become future fit myself and then sharing that with other people. Andrea Clark, you've done an incredible job of training hundreds of women and it's a great privilege for me to have you um, as part of the Future Women community and uh, in the business at all times and an incredible support to me personally. Uh, and thank you very much for sharing us uh, your insights into how to be future fit. Absolute pleasure. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. <laughs>